Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 86 where we go back, back to, the to the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or pick us up from iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and from the call of the wild. Oh! oh. <laughs> uh, this <laughs> week we have an oldie, an oldie but. We'll find out if it's a goodie. It's Jungle Comics number two, February 1940, cover date. Published by Fiction House, produced by the Eisner and Iger Studio. And there are nine stories in this comic, and we will go through every one of them with a special concentration on the last story. Oh, yeah. Bang for your buck. Uh, cover by Will Eisner. Cover price was 10 cents. And uh, it says, now published every month, which is kind of a strange announcement for the second issue of a magazine, isn't it? You know? Just, I think so, yeah. Just start publishing it every month, and there, there it is. But uh, all right, I guess that's uh, something to celebrate. But first, let's provide some context over here. Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to talk about the jungle craze. Oh, yeah, I know all about this. It's got that beat that goes like... No, 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 not, not that jungle. What do you mean? The one that goes... <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, the word jungle itself originates from Sanskrit word jungla which means uncultivated land. Since it's really part of the old world, Europeans sort of knew there was some dense, dark unknown to the south of them, though they may not have known exactly what a jungle was. Uh, European exploration of sub-Saharan Africa, that's the jungle part, Mm. begins with the Age of Discovery in the 15th century. Explorer Bartholomew Diaz rounded Africa's southern tip, that's the Cape of Good Hope, back on March 12, 1488. Now, this opened an important trading route, but Europeans stayed pretty clear of Africa until the 16th and 17th centuries, content instead to establish trading posts along the coast. Right, and this this created that kind of trading triangle between Venice, Africa, and China, and made Venice Mm. into a major port, was essentially uh, that kind of trade. Uh, But exploration of the interior of Africa was mostly left to the Arab slave traders who, in tandem with the Muslim conquest of the Sudan, established far-reaching networks and empires from the 15th to 18th centuries. And yes, those European trading posts along the coast where we could was where someone could shift some slaves for a time, if you want to get the full story out there. By the middle of the 19th century, there was a mad scramble by several European powers to colonize Africa, and the only places left unexplored were were known as the Dark Heart of Africa. This was the Congo Basin and the African Great Lakes. During this period, several expeditions were funded, often by wealthy robber barons making their fortune elsewhere on the same continent of Africa. And it's uh, from this time we get the typical white conqueror in a pith helmet image that is associated with jungle exploration, you know, with a contingent of uh, natives and uh, elephant guns and all that. Uh, 
John Hanning Spake, David Livingstone, and Henry— I presume. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Henry Morton Stanley were three European explorers who published exploits were much enjoyed by European and American audiences. Now we have The Jungle Book. Now, that's a children's book by Rudyard Kipling, published by Macmillan in 1894. A collection of stories, most of them centering around a boy that was abandoned in the forest and raised by wolves. That was Mowgli. Yes, now, that's right. <laughs> and the kind of the basis of the uh, Cub Scout uh, badges, too. <laughs> now, all the animals have very tribal-sounding names, and he can converse with all of them. This book is set in India, though it's not specified exactly where. Still, it's uh, the same kind of mysterious jungle experience Western audiences craved. Yep, then they would get some more of it in Tarzan of the Apes. That was a novel written by Edgar Rice Burroughs and illustrated uh, in the first edition by Fred J. Arting. First released as a magazine serial in 1912, then collect in a collected form in 1914. The very basic version of the story is the son of royalty is abandoned and raised by apes in the jungle. He can also converse with all animals and swing through the trees, just like the apes that raised him. Eventually, he's taken back to polite society with initially hilarious results, and then he actually has to go back to the jungle, and then there's even sort of like a back and forth, like they just sort of, you know, dealing with problems on the home front and abroad. Uh, this spawned quite a series of novels. Uh, Tarzan of the Apes was the first in 1912, The Return of Tarzan in 1913, The Beasts of Tarzan in 1914. I was hoping you'd say Tarzan and not Tarzan. I didn't, I wasn't sure which Am I saying it right? Say. Am I saying Tarzan? Yeah. I say Tarzan too, I, but yeah. I know some folks say Tarzan. Yeah. Uh, we're going to continue the list here. The Son of Tarzan, 1915. Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar, 1916. Jungle Tales of Tarzan in 1919. Tarzan the Untamed in 1920. Uh, Tarzan the Terrible in 1921, Tarzan and the Golden Lion in 1923, Tarzan and the Ant-Men in 1924, Tarzan Lord of the Jungle in 1927. Tarzan and the Lost Empire in 1928, Tarzan at the Earth's Core 1929, Tarzan the Invincible 1930-1931, Tarzan Triumphant 1931. Tarzan in the City of Gold 1932. Tarzan and the Lion Man, 1934. Tarzan and the Leopard Men, Lion Man and Leopard Men, 1935. Sure. And Tarzan's Quest, 1936. Tarzan and the Forbidden City, 1938. Tarzan the Magnificent, 1939. Tarzan and the Foreign Legion, 1947. Wow. Quite a jump. He was Tarzan the Prolific for quite a while. There. Yep. But we do jump uh, eight years for that one. And then the next and one, too, yeah. Yes, and then we jump again, almost 20 years, to Tarzan and the Madman in 1964. But I think you get the, uh, the point here, obviously, is that it was a very popular franchise yes. for a time. Uh, also, Tarzan, The Lost Adventure in 1995 with uh, Joe R. Lansdale. Yeah, it wasn't that popular. That one, nah. that one I don't think got a lot of play. But uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, there was a 1921 Broadway production of Tarzan of the Apes starred Ronald A. Dare as Tarzan and Ethel Dwyer as Jane Porter. Tarzan of the Apes was adapted into a newspaper strip form, which a lot of early comics guys quote that as being a huge inspiration. Uh, first published January 7th, 1929, with illustrations by Hal Foster. A full-page Sunday strip began on March 15th, 1931, with artwork by Rex Maxson. Uh, which sounds like an, a nom de plume, if you ask me, but... Uh, Maybe. <laughs> distributed by the United Features Syndicate. Uh, the Daily Strip began to reprint old dailies after the last Russ Manning daily. That was number 10,308 
and that ran on July 29, 1972. The Sunday Strip also turned to reprints around 2000. Which, which was surprising. I was like, wow, they were still it making boggles the mind, huh? Uh, yeah. and, and both strips continue to reprints today in a few newspapers and in comics review. Now, there were also two radio shows, a host of comic book ripoffs, a television show that would come later, and by far the most significant form of Tarzan in terms of penetrating the public, public's consciousness were those film for the film adaptations. The first Tarzan movies were silent pictures adapted from the original Tarzan novels, which appeared within the first few years of the character's creation. We have Tarzan of the Apes in 1918. The Romance of Tarzan, also 1918. The Revenge of Tarzan, 1920. The Adventures of Tarzan, 1921, and Tarzan and the Golden Lion in 1927. Wow, all those silent films, too. That's a, yeah. like a lot of, again, successful franchise, what it tells me. Uh, with the advent of Talking Pictures, a popular Tarzan movie franchise was developed first by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and later by RKO. It was anchored at first by five-time Olympic gold medalist and actor Johnny Weissmuller in the title role. Tarzan films from the 1930s on often featured Tarzan's chimpanzee companion, Cheetah, and the scantily clad button buff Weissmuller was the reason for the series' popularity, almost definitely. Uh, <laughs> they, they, you know, they, they found that the more they had him with his shirt off, the better the movie did. Yep. Uh, and it's from this era that we get me, Tarzan, you, Jane, that old, like, uh, Tarzan adage. Yes. Uh, Weissmuller starred in a total of 12 films all through uh, 1948, but that's long past the time period we'll be in when we read... Jungle Comics, number two, 1940. Now we want to let you guys know you could read this issue for yourself at comicbookplus.com. That's right, that's what we did, and uh, exactly. it's free, free to use, so go check it out. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, like we mentioned, we got a cover by Will Eisner. Uh, Eisner, born March 6, 1917 in Brooklyn, New York. Passed away January 3rd, 2005 in Lauderdale Lakes, Florida. You can check out Weird Comics History, episode number 25, for all those years in between. That's right. We did quite quite a big one on that, so <laughs> but don't feel like I have to redress it. Uh, this one uh, on the cover is Kanga. That's K with a, uh, then A with an umlaut above it. A-N-G-A. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you don't usually see an umlaut above a, 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 a but it can happen. You figure like jungle folks wouldn't be so proper. You right? didn't think so. Yeah, I guess phonetics, <laughs> they still practice phonetics in the jungle. Sure. Uh, this basically Kanga is a blonder, but otherwise a bare ripoff of Tarzan, leaping from the back of an elephant, knife in hand. He's descending upon a brutish looking fella holding a rifle wearing a pith helmet. Uh, the elephant's also using its trunk to upend a similarly dressed poacher. Uh, grabbing a guy by his ankle. There's also an angry-looking woman in in a one-shoulder leopard print dress. Probably Kanga's girlfriend, I would think, but who knows? Maybe. Yes. Now, the cover advertises Kanga, Jungle Lord, in in a new action-packed adventure, Terror of the Bush. Other features uh, promoted here, we have also the Red Panther, Phantom Avenger, Wombi, Jungle Boy, Simba, the King of the Beasts, Taboo, the Jungle Wizard, and many other top-notch features. A quote accompanies the cover image, and it says, Roaring the fierce battle cry of the jungle, Kanga sprang. I mean, you got to imagine a cover like this on the newsstand today. <laughs> you know, I just don't, you know what I mean? Wambi, Jungle Boy, Simba, Wambi, King of, yes. oh my, you know, the, that newsstand would be shut down before, you know, the first customer even, like, got his gum. Uh, mm-hmm. But anyway, that this kind of thing pushed comics back in the day. Uh, first story is titled Terror of the Bush, featuring Kanga, Kang Kanga, Kanga. 
uh, by Red Bradley, which is a pseudonym. Now, because a lot of these stories, or all these stories, were done by the Eisner and Iger studio, as we talk about in that uh, uh, episode about Will Eisner, he he would use, they would all use different names. They would all use pseudonyms yeah. to make it appear like there was a bigger office than it a really was. A whole bunch of people, yeah. <laughs> so there are, there are some where, where uh, people much uh, better than we are have made pretty good stabs at who probably the uh, people drew these were, but often we don't know who the writers were if they were anybody, if they weren't just sure. written by the guy that drew them. And sometimes we don't know. So we will come into a lot of pseudonyms, but uh, we wanted to have fun with it. So we're going to make up the bio. So Red yes. Bradley was born on Mars in 1732. He discovered the last living leprechaun and destroyed him. In 1828, he passed away of melancholy in 1955. Now... I, I would always That always happened to me in Oregon Trail. That's it. Could, it could happen, right? You pass away. <laughs> dysentery of melancholy, right? One of the two. Yeah, one of those. Uh, so Kenga is stated a bear ripoff of Tarzan. He's a young Caucasian boy whose parents died in the jungle, leaving him to be raised by apes. He just never comes back to Greystoke to live among civilized folks like Tarzan does. He just stayed in the jungle. Uh, he first appeared in Jungle Comics number one, which was January 1940 cover date, which will prove to be true of almost all of the characters that follow. Indeed. Now, after killing a zebra and a lion with his bare hands, he, he literally shoves his fist down a lion's throat. Yep. Kenga, Kenga returns, and he attacks a zebra for no reason other than to kill it. Yep. Uh, Kenga returns to his hut to find it destroyed and smoldering. That's, like, that, that's, girl... that's before 8 a.m., by the way. I mean, this is, this yes. is the life of a, of a, a jungle guy. Yeah, coffee hasn't even perked yet. Nope. Uh, now, his girlfriend, Anne, a jungle explorer in Jodfers and a Pith helmet is also missing. Kenga heads over to the evil Dr. Rat, that's W-R-A-T-T, his private island. He battles and kills a crocodile along the way, because why not? Uh, unfortunately for him, though, the crocodile does manage to nip him in the ankle. It injures Kanga, leaving him open to be subdued by one of Dr. Rat's hypnotized man-apes. But there's, you know, this crocodile bites him in the ankle, but it doesn't even draw blood. It doesn't break the skin. Yeah. I, I think it just sort of <laughs> twists it, you know, he just sort of gets a cramp, that's it. Mm -hmm. uh, so over to Dr. Rat's laboratory, he heals Kanga instantly with some science... But then he holds a gun on him and refuses to let Kanga leave the <laughs> island. <laughs> Dr. Rat even turns and loose and allows her to smooch Kanga. I mean, it seems like he uh, just wants him to hang out. Uh, Dr. Rat says that his man-apes are trained to destroy anyone trying to leave the island. He illustrates this by hypnotizing some random guy to want to flee the island, and then the man-apes tear him apart. Kanga and Anne turn the tables on Dr. Rat and attempt to use him as a shield to escape. Uh, the man-apes don't care who it is. They aren't letting anyone escape. So Kanga fights a man-ape and kills him by stabbing him in the forehead with a knife. Literally. It's just wow. right, right in the forehead. Just bang, you know, the whoa. <laughs> now then the three of them flee another mob of man-apes, chasing after them with spears. Uh, now they cross a long suspension bridge to get off Dr. Rat's island. However, halfway across, Dr. Rat changes his mind and turns around. The man-apes tear him apart. So, bad decision. Uh, Kanga cuts the suspension bridge as man-apes attempt to cross it and sends a bunch of them tumbling to the water below, where, quote, instantly the slimy crocodile hastened to the feast. <laughs> <laughs> All that taken care of, they hop aboard the back of Tampi, the elephant who just happened to be walking by, and uh, they ride off into the sunset. Yeah, they call what they call the jungle bus service, you know? You, sure. Random elephant walking by, you hail them down, you, there you go, you're on your way. 
Now we head over to the second story. This is featuring the Red Panther in his first appearance. Uh, this is by Taylor Martin. Another pseudonym. So, Taylor Martin was born in March of 1910 in Sloppy Pass, North Dakota. He killed himself a bar when he was only three. He invented the co- concept of staycation. Passed away in 1981 from a bruised adenoid. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, now, we figure this one was most likely drawn by Arthur Petty. Uh, now, Arthur F. Petty was born the day after Christmas, 1916, in New Jersey. He entered the fledgling comic book field in 1938 at Eisner and Iger. He's one of the handful of packagers. Uh, now, he, for his first known comic book work was the Western feature Waco Kid in publisher Fox Comics Mystery Men Comics Number 1. That was August 1939 cover date. He continued there after Eisner departed in 1940 and became the S.M. Iger Studio. Uh, for that publisher, as well as for Fiction House and Quality Comics, he drew seafaring stories, jungle adventures, science fiction stories, and other genre tales. With some unknown writer, Petty co-created the female superhero Phantom Lady in Quality's Police Comics Number 1. That was August 1941, cover date. And he continued to draw her adventures through issue number 13, November 1942, when actually that's going to be taken over and redesigned by Matt Baker. Uh, Arthur enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1942, serving in the Signal Corps. He served throughout the European theater of operation through 1945, rising to the rank of technical sergeant. His comics work, perhaps stockpiled, continued to appear in quality and fiction house comic books through at least cover date August 1943. After the war, Petty had runs penciling the aviator hero Airboy and the original muck monster The Heap, Variously, from 1946 to 1948 for Hillman periodicals. In 1947, Petty additionally began penciling for All-American Publications, one of the companies that would eventually evolve into DC Comics. With inker Bernie Sackslate? Sackslate, yes, sure. Sackslate, sure. But he's generally credited, uh, thankfully, as Bernie Sacks. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) The easier to say, Bernie Sacks. Now, he formed the Petty and Sacks Studio, which lasted through 1953. Uh, Features on which they worked include the superhero adventure Dr. Midnight, the swashbuckler the Black Pirate, and the aviator feature Hop Harrigan, all in the flagship title All-American Comics and the superhero feature Wildcat in Sensation Comics. Now, uh, Petty penciled a run of superhero team uh, of the superhero team Justice Society of America that was in All-Star Comics issues 42 through 57, September 1948 through March 1951 cover dates. Starting in 1951, he worked primarily for Fawcett Comics and Ziff Davis for, for two years, uh, followed by a plethora of publishers, including Atlas Comics, which is, of course, the precursor to Marvel Comics, as well as St. John Publications, Avon Comics, and even others. There were a lot of comics in those uh, companies in those early 50s. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, Arthur Petty and fellow comics artists George Evans and Ed Ash, spearheaded com- by comics artist Bernard Krigstein, were among the founders of the industry's short-lived attempt at a labor union in 1952. This was the Society of Comic Book Illustrators. Petty served as vice president under Krigstein with Harry Harrison as secretary, Larry Warramay as treasurer, and Ross Andrew, Ernie Bash, John Salardo, Maury Marcus, and Bernard Sachs as members at large. The organization went defunct shortly after publication of its third and final newsletter in June 1953. The following year, Petty and writer Don Rico created Atlas's Jungle Girl character, Jan of the Jungle, in Jungle Tales No. 1, September 1954, cover date. 
He was among several comic book artists who contributed to the short-lived black and white satiric humor magazine Lunatickle, published by Whitestone Publishing <laughs> and edited by Myron Fass in 1956. He gradually specialized in war comics and romance comics for publisher DC Comics through 1957 and thereafter drew almost exclusively romance comics for DC's Falling in Love, Girls Romances, Heartthrobs, and Secret Hearts through at least 1968. Uh, his romance work continued, continued on the reprints into the mid-1970s, and we know what happened, why he suddenly switched over to working for DC, was because the Comics Code eradicated almost all of those publishers all he others, had been working yeah. for. <laughs> now, throughout the 60s, Petty began adding commercial and advertising art to his workload, primarily storyboards for television commercials for uh, products including Campbell's Soup, Chevron, Hillsborough's Coffee, Pepsi, Pine Salt, Burger King, Quaker Oats, and DuPont. From 1970 through 79, he worked for the advertising firm BBDO. And now uh, Petty married the widow Joanne Posner in April 1987, becoming the stepfather to her sons. He would pass away May 15, 2002 in Norwalk, Connecticut. Pop artist Roy Lichtenstein's 1965 painting Sound of, Sound of Music is based on a Petty comic book battle. And I, and I tried my best to find out what issue, what it was. There, you can look online. You can see the two, the, the work, you know, Lichtenstein's mm -hmm. painting and Petty's panel side by side, and definitely... There's no doubt about it that uh, Lichtenstein took it from there, but I couldn't sure. find out where that panel was from. So. Where it originated, huh? If anyone knows, let us know. Sure. But anyway, on to the story, the Red, the, uh, the Red Panther story. This uh, features two missionaries, a father and his daughter, Joan, are captured by the wicked witch doctor, Tortug. He's got a whole tribe of folks carrying heads on bamboo spikes. The idea is to torture the missionaries to prove Tortug's gods are better than theirs. The Red Panther spies this while oddly standing on a tree limb. Now, he looks sort of like Evil Knievel, the, uh, <laughs> you know, the old uh, stunt the guy. Devil, yeah. Yeah, with a, but he's got a skin-tight red suit, but it's open to the navel, so very 70s. <laughs> uh, he's also wearing a red and blue kind of Zorro-esque headscarf that masks his identity, although we're not sure who he is outside of the costume, so I'm not sure that it matters. Yeah, I don't know how, how secretive you need to be in the jungle. It really, yeah. Uh, no, the... <laughs> Now, the Red Panther swoops in to grab the missionaries. They all run away through the jungle, but the father carelessly falls into a trap. He finds himself at the bottom of a pit with a hungry tiger. And so the Red Panther jumps down and kills the tiger. Above, Tortug has Joan, and so a fire is prepared for her torture, for their torture and deaths. Red Panther fights back and coaxes Tortug into a one-on-one -on -one fight. Then he judo flips Tortug into the very fire prepared for the white folks. The missionaries free now to spread their beliefs. The Red Panther takes off into the lush rainforest. And all's well that ends perfectly well, mm -hmm. right? Isn't that a great, a beautiful <laughs> story of, uh, I don't know, the two missionaries destroying a culture or something happening? Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> now we go right to that third story featuring Taboo, Wizard of the Jungle. This one is actually by Fletcher Hanks, but signed as R.L. Golden. It's definitely Fletcher Hanks, but we will handle his bio a little later on in the episode, and uh, there's a great reason for it. Uh, presumably, this would be another Caucasian kid abandoned in the jungle. Taboo saves an old witch doctor from a terrible jungle death, and this, isn't the, this is his origin, so this isn't the story. Uh, and in return, the witch doctor gives him a sixth and seventh sense. That's mighty, mighty <laughs> that's a, generous of a lot of senses you handed out. <laughs> uh, I'm making it round it off to an eight if you, uh, you know, rub my feet. Uh, this makes him supreme in jungle land where he can leap higher than the leopard, 
He's able to soar through the wind with more speed than the eagle and dart through the water more swiftly than the shark. He's also more agile than the monkey, fleeter than the deer, and more startlingly, he can perform physical transformations. Could have just left it at that, right? But you would think that would be the main thing, yeah. But yeah, I guess that must be that seventh sense or something. It must be. Uh, now, John Brooks and his son Jim, world-renowned explorers, are and heading a large expedition to the legendary Elephant's Graveyard uh, to pilfer the ivory specifically. And uh, I want to remind you that these are the good guys. These are the good guys so. in this story, but you know, we'll find out more about what they've had ivory Indeed. Later, yeah. <laughs> now, a shirtless, bald white man approaches their camp, and he's dying of thirst. After being given water, he leaps up and stabs John Brooks in the heart. Uh, no good deed goes unpunished. Yeah. Uh, the bald man named Sanders ex- escapes out the back of the tent. Jim finds his father dying, mumbling about his map to the elephant's graveyard having been stolen. So then Jim heads out with a flashlight after the guy that killed his father, but he's shot in the back by Sanders' cohort, Spike, who looks sort of like Bud Abbott in a white suit. Uh, Jim is not dead, however. He crawls back towards camp, and there he's beset by a vicious lion. But Taboo, the jungle wizard, swings it in a vine and kills the lion by grabbing its back legs and and smashing it against a tree. I mean, wow, that's pretty brutal. Uh, (laughs) Taboo takes Jim up into the jungle canopy and treats his wounds, and after hearing Jim's story... Taboo vows to assist in his revenge. The next morning, Taboo leads Brooks' large safari into the elephant's graveyard. Taboo already knows where it is, of course. He is a jungle wizard. After Hello, all. yeah. <laughs> Jim is carried along on an improvised stretcher. Along the way, they come across some vicious apes. One of the party is scared and fires a gun. This would startle the apes, who then destroy most of the Brooks' expedition. Taboo is able to dispatch the apes Almost single-handedly. Yeah, he just takes them a little while, so while he does that, a lot of the guys, a lot of the uh, camp is lost. And now, the expedition's whittled down to one-fourth its original number. Not enough to make this search for Ivy profitable anymore, for some reason. Uh, you, can't th- carry, you need more guys to carry. I guess, yeah, you need, you need <laughs> to make it worthwhile to you know, load them all up with 50 pounds of ivory. But uh, <laughs> they press on anyway. They've gotten this far, and they finally make it to the elephant's graveyard, and it exceeds Jim's wildest dreams. From behind a rock steps Sanders and Spike, along with a detail of men specifically written to be black and white, just so we know that the multicultural bad guys are rolling up on them. Uh, They're surprised Mm -hmm. to see Jim still alive, who cries out, They killed my father! (laughs) Spike and Sanders fire away at the group, but the bullets are absorbed by a gigantic (laughs) tree that's appeared between them. Uh, it's Taboo pulling uh, the old shape-shifting maneuver again. Uh, Spike and Sanders take off, looking to escape across a nearby river. Jim wants to fire on them, but Taboo tells him to let the jungle have its way. Jim's pretty ticked off at Taboo for stopping them. Yeah. Happily, happily, we see Spike and Sanders eaten by crocodiles in the very next panel. And now they can use the expedition of black and white men to haul back plenty of ivory. Oh, everything worked out except for the guys that got killed by the uh, crocodiles. But yeah, he actually yeah. tells Taboo, let go of my gun, you wild man. You're robbing me of my revenge. Like, <laughs> take it easy, buddy. You know, like, everything, you know, Taboo's got it under control, dude. He's the wizard. He's the jungle wizard. Yeah, did you listen to the jungle wizard when you're in the jungle? Uh, Now we are in the fourth story. (laughs) These are all untitled pretty much, which is why we're just calling them fourth story. Uh, Featuring Camilla, queen of the lost city. 
This one has a real uh, person, a real signature, signed by C.A. Winter, actually signed C.A.W., which was uh, his most common signature. This is actually Charles Chuck A. Winter. He drew several comics, features th through the Eisner and Iger studio, then later as a freelancer. This included speed comics, exciting comics, and journey into mystery. His last known credit is writing and drawing the story Seeing Eye in Marvel Comics' horror anthology, The Frankenstein Monster, issue number 9, March 1973, cover date. This is actually a one-off character. There is a Camilla that appears in Jungle Comics number 1 and subsequent issues, but she is not the queen of the lost city, nor is she so vindictive. Uh, in some instances, she's queen of a lost empire, uh, <laughs> but in any case, she's essentially a ripoff of Sheena, queen of the jungle, a character created three years earlier by Will Eisner, so uh, I'm sure it was okay yeah, since he, this is a an Eisner joint anyway. He's just ripping off his own stuff, basically, but yeah, yeah like, she's kind of mean in this story, as we'll come to find, but she's usually helpful elsewhere, but... Yeah. Whatever, she was having a bad day. So uh, the half-page splash tells us what we need to know. In the heart of darkest Africa, a lost city is ruled by beautiful Camilla, descended by the, from the great conqueror Genghis Khan. You know, her and one-third of the rest of the world, apparently, from what I hear from yeah. DNA tests, right? <laughs> uh, Captain John Stanley leads an expedition of men. They're carrying ivory to the coast, quote-unquote, to dispose of. That's what they say here. Mm make a dump truck full of money from is what they mean i have a feeling Probably. uh suddenly a yellow and red rocket buzzes by the expedition this frightens the enlisted african men into running away john stanley shoots the rocket down with a pistol shot and uh they they come up close and confirm that it's radio controlled then a bunch of robots show up Right. Uh, Stanley holds them. <laughs> Stanley holds them off for a while with a mounted machine gun. Eventually, they paralyze him with their quote radio guns and take off with him. They head into the lost city, which looks to be uh, hidden atop a mountain within a deep valley. When he awakens, John Stanley is taken to meet Camilla in her lavish palace. She says no harm will come to him and invites John to eat in her private salon, which uh, probably beats uh, the cafeteria, right? I would bet, especially if the cafeteria is mostly robots. I mean, what is it, oil? Right? Oil, Maybe, nuts, and yeah. bolts. That's what you expect to see in a jungle story, right? Rocket ships and robots. That's the kind of thing you want to... Uh, yeah, to, I think so. <laughs> that's what you'd encounter. <laughs> uh, Camilla explains that her city must remain hidden because it was founded 500 years ago by Radicus Khan, a descendant of Genghis Khan. Huh? Yeah, I don't know why that follows, but there is no Radicus Khan, <laughs> incidentally. So there it is. Uh, the city is rich in resources, including flux odium, a radium ray. Uh, and she's during while she's eating with John, she says, we can destroy your Western civilization whenever we wish. It's kind of a weird conversation thing. <laughs> how does that even come up? Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh, by the way. So how do you like the fish? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Camilla further explains that they rob ivory caravans, then trade the ivory themselves at the coast for equipment. And I wonder... Why don't they just sell the Flexodium? The, this right? Radio, right? This seems like they're rich. They should be rich beyond anyone's wildest dreams. They have robots and rocket ships, for goodness sake. Mm -hmm. uh, and she would like John Stanley to be the captain of her army since he's hanging around. He says, no thanks. Camilla tells him he will live like a king. John is flattered, really, but he must be going. Uh, Camilla begs him to stay and throws herself at Stanley. He appreciates the offer, but he's got to be getting back now. Indeed. Now then Camilla says she will keep him there against his will then, as a slave. Oh. 
Hmm, Camilla has some robots. Take John to the dungeon. But he breaks free and somehow knocks a bunch of them silly. I didn't know that could happen with robots. <laughs> really? He just kind of balls them out, but fine. He KOs a robot. Uh, now, now, recaptured, John Smith is censured, sent, sentenced to death. Uh, he's to be strapped to a flexodium torpedo and hurled into space. Maybe that's a rocket. Torpedoes are underwater, right? Yeah, that's not, it's, it's not, you can't just fire anything and call it a torpedo, but all right. <laughs> now, John breaks free, knocks a few robot gods out, and makes the Flexodium machine go haywire. This winds up shaking the lost city apart and threatens to destroy it. John Stanley escapes with Camilla's unconscious body in his arms. But upon awakening, uh, Camilla is duty-bound to return to her burning city. And it's more than just burning. It, it's more or less a wall of flames at this point, right? Yeah, she's just walking into a massive fire. And I, I think the uh, even she, though it, it says follow Camilla in the next Jungle Comics, this is the end of I this Camilla. I think she's dead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that's, why, that's why this is considered a one-off, because it really is nothing like the other ones. And she seems to die at the end of the story anyway. So it's uh, it's <laughs> unlike any other instance of Camilla, from what I understand. Although I can't pretend I read all or even most of them. Uh, but that just takes us right over to that fifth story. This features Captain Terry Thunder of the Congo Lancers. There's no credit at all here, but this is thought to be drawn by Rafael Astarita. Uh, Rafael Gerard Norman Astarita was born August 2, 1912, in Brooklyn, New York City, to an American-born father, a police officer, and a mother that emigrated from Norway. He's the middle child of three, an older brother and a younger sister on either side of him. Raphael's mother had studied art, and she noticed his proclivity early on. She was very inventive herself by her own account. She said, I was always of an inventive turn of mind. You see, when I sew, I sew differently from most women. I think of little things to make the work easier. When my clock stops, I take it apart myself. Of course, when you have children, they take up so much of your time that you can forget about inventions. Despite these constraints, she found time to invent a patented automatic fire escape device that lowered occupants from the windows of burning skyscrapers, and it was featured in the 19, April, 19 issue, April 1918 issue of Popular Science. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the family moved a couple times during Raphael's childhood, but uh, always stayed in Brooklyn. In June 1926, Raphael uh, completed the eighth grade, at which point he left school and entered the workforce as a menial laborer. Although he never graduated high school and did not receive formal art school training, he followed a dedicated regime of self-education and improvement. He eventually assembled a massive home library of instructional manuals and how-to books. Raphael went to the beach every day in the warm weather and was physically fit. He lifted weights and was a strong swimmer, even saving several people from drowning. He even dove from the Brooklyn Bridge to rescue a person who had jumped off to commit suicide. According to According legend. According to legend. <laughs> uh, this started to sound like that Charles Atlas story, right? Like this whole... <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, we couldn't find any news stories to corroborate this event, uh, but there have been plenty of daredevils throughout the years that have dove off the Brooklyn Bridge and lived as publicity stunts. Right, so it is possible, although uh, we have to say not super not likely. Probable. Not yeah. probable would be the best way to put it, right? Uh, so Raphael and his brother were both avid sailors. They once had a fight over conflicting notions of the proper way to tie a particular sailor's knot, and the dispute became so bitter their brothers severed their relationship and remained estranged for the rest of their lives. Lots of serious <laughs> this business. serious stuff. You better, you better tie them right. Uh, <laughs> Rafael Astarita was 23 when he began to work for comic books in 1935. He wrote and drew a two-page strip about King Arthur for New Comics number 3 in February 1936. That's considered his, probably his first uh, published work. Mm -hmm. 
Raphael married in 1937 to Anne Baroff, and they lived in Brooklyn. He drew for the Harry A. Chesler Shaw from 1936 to 1939, and then Eisner and Iger from 1939 to 1941. Uh, he joined the staff at Fiction House Comics in 1942 and worked there for two years. I mean, and through the Panama Canal. He was honorably discharged as Seaman First Class in 1946. After the war, his pen and ink story illustrations appeared in pulp magazines produced by Fiction House, such as Jungle Stories, Lariat Stories, and Planet Stories. Raphael's work also appeared in pulp magazines published by Standard Comics, such as Startling Stories and Thrilling Wonder. In 1947, Raphael Esterita became art director at Standard, uh, from 19, uh, 1950 to 51, he worked for Avon Comics. During the second half of the 50s, Asterita contributed illustrations to a juvenile reference work. Raphael lent illustrations to the Picture World Encyclopedia. This is a 12-volume set of saddle-stapled books published by the F.M. Charlton Company. According to the advertising, this was, a, this was the first truly modern picture book encyclopedia, specifically written for children 6 to 16, and offered a 50 cents for each of the 12 volumes. There's never been an encyclopedia so easy to understand, so thrillingly presented, so up to the minute, with the very latest facts. No long, wordy explanations. No dull, confusing language. The picture world encyclopedia informs in a bright, lively way. Every subject is illustrated in full color with over 6,000 pictures in all. Now, this ambitious project took five years to complete and included illustrations by many artists, such as Paul Jepson, Gene Fawcett, Robert Jenny, Rick Estrada, and Bob Powell. Yeah, we might have to dig one of those up and see what, those, Absolutely. Uh, what that looks yeah. like. Yeah. Uh, Raphael also illustrated pulps under the name John Martin. And in 1954, Raphael designed sets for the Tom Corbett Space Cadet TV show. In 1956, yeah, now he's really moving up. Uh, he, opened, yeah. he opened an advertising art agency called Asterita Associates in Manhattan, New York. By 1958, he had closed his ad agency and accepted a job as art director of the advertising firm Rossman Productions. And in 1968, both of Raphael's parents had died and left him with a considerable inheritance. He and his wife moved to 140 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn Heights, which then and now is a very Tony address, to the 27th floor, which offered a spectacular view of Manhattan. That's a thing that New Yorkers care about, trust me. Uh, it's yes. A, it's a <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Now, according to this artist's longtime friend and comic book historian, Hames Ware, he says, Raphael Estorita seemed perfectly content to take his art supplies down to the shore and paint seascapes, which he seemed not to worry over whether they sold or not, just happy to be painting and near the sea. I can recall how he was always reading and would always get excited about any new concept. He had just read Drawing from the Left Side of the Brain, and he called to tell me how it stimulated new ways of approaching art. He was very wise. He once told me, if you're afraid of failure, you haven't failed enough. Surely he is one of the top artists to have ever drawn for comic books. Now, he and his wife remained, remained happily married, but had no children. In 1992, Raphael moved to a nursing home in New Jersey. Uh, his wife would suffer a stroke in 1982, 
and had already been at a Brooklyn facility for years. Raphael developed colon cancer in 1993 and made up with his estranged brother. I guess they put the knot behind them. Good luck. Thank goodness. It only took like 50 years. I mean, sheesh. Right? <laughs> they hold grudges. Yep. Uh, Raphael would pass away in New Jersey on December 7th, 1994. His wife passed a year and four days later. Yeah, I th- I couldn't really get. I mean, my impression is they were in two different facilities, but that almost seems seemed, like. It, huh? But it almost seems unlikely because they were so, you know, tight. They were so close. They really only had yeah, each other. Were, so we're together for uh, so long. Yeah. Who knows what the what the full arrangement was? Or maybe they saw each other regularly or something like this. But sure, one could have been a skilled nursing in different ways. Or exactly. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, uh, talk about the character here. Terry Thunder first appeared in Jungle Comics number one. He's a British Army captain in charge of a scrappy battalion known as the Congo Lancers. And that's pretty much not much more to say about it than that. Uh, not content to stick with the jungle, Terry's adventures take him all over the continent of Africa, as we will learn right now, because this story takes place in North Africa, where the rainy season has ended and the Congo Lancers' supplies are running low. Some guy calls H- Some army guy calls HQ to inform them of the situation and that two of his men have caught the fever. Uh, we gather later that the person calling is a colonel at a place called Fort Dearth. Terry gets orders to assemble a team of men and take a message and some supplies to Fort Dearth. Terry picks a few real caucus. Yeah. We got Krostoff, a notorious thief. Le Jacques, hunted by the Paris police. Heinrock, an unmerciful murderer. Vasakov, a deserter and traitor. And Saunders, an escaped convict. I mean, what, what, what was Yikes. this? Like, everyone else is out sick that day? Like, what was wrong? <laughs> you had to pick, like, the worst <laughs> of the bunch here. This is a, a real suicide squad, huh? <laughs> really? Now, yeah. uh, the, group, the group heads for Fort Dearth, but they're spotted by a weary nomad. The nomad runs back to his master, the ruler of the country of Kislam. Gotta be kidding. What? It's right there on the map next to Kijipt and Kairan. You don't even know <laughs> Uh, so this nomad tells the leader of Kislam that Fort Dearth is in dire straits ripe for attack. The leader is thrilled, and now they can turn the tables on these infidels. And if you're wondering how it all looks, it's all turbans and keyhole doorways and scimitars. <laughs> Bunch of imagery taken from the film East Sweet's Mess West from 1932, which basically set the visual tone for how all Middle East would be handled for many years. Uh, the leader of Kislam is the trumpeter call forth his warriors, and they depart. They attack Fort Dearth, where Captain Terry and his men have already already stationed, and there is a tremendous conflict. Though the attacking force is routed, three of Terry Thunder's men are killed. Then Jacques and Krostoff plot to overthrow Terry. But Jacques is shot and killed by a man from Kislam. Uh, as reinforcements for, for Fort Dearth arrive, Krostoff attempts to attack Captain Terry, uh, who knocks Krostoff out with a right cross. Yep. It's all in a day's worth for Mr. Captain Terry Thunder. And that is all we say about that. What a very yeah, that, what strange a weird... story. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, sixth story uh, featuring Wambi, the Jungle Boy. This is yes. by Roy L. Smith, which is yeah, yeah, another likely pseudonym. So we'll say Roy L. Smith was born 1899 in Sprotenhausen, Germany. Uh, his family came to America in 1914, fleeing superfluous consonants. They learned to write by reading cereal boxes, and he passed away in his Florida home in 1992 for Miami Vice withdrawal. 
Yeah, you should have seen his stubble. Suffered. Oh yeah, oh yeah, it was yeah, bad. Stubble was bad. <laughs> uh, this was drawn by Harry Kiefer, uh, signed surreptitiously, uh, surreptitiously as Deco Deco Rosset. <laughs> yeah, it'll explain. We'll learn why in a minute. <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah. Now Henry Carl Carl Kiefer was born April fifteenth, eighteen ninety, in Cincinnati, Ohio. He was the oldest of three boys, plus had a youngest sister. Uh, now Henry. His mother and father were American-born to German immigrants. Father Daniel Kiefer was a tailor, and the family was fairly prosperous. Prosper, not prosperous. Yeah. They're prosperous. Yeah. They had money. They were okay. They were doing they even all right. Had three, they even had three servants. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Henry took weekend art classes at the Cincinnati Art Museum while in high school. After graduating high school in 1908, he would spend the summer traveling in Europe to visit art museums and relatives. Returning to his family home in Cincinnati, Henry worked as a clerk at his father's clothing business. In 1910, Henry moved to Chicago to study at the Chicago Art Students League. There, he met Dean Cornwell, who would become a well-known illustrator for magazines and eventually a teacher at the uh, Chicago Art Students League himself. While in Chicago, Henry was also active in amateur theatrical productions. But then he continued his art training, moving to Wilmington, Delaware in 1915. There, Henry studied with famous children's book illustrator Howard Pyle's former student, Frank Schoonover. <laughs> uh, he was carrying on after his teacher's unexpected death in 1911. While studying, he also found some paid work in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and art in Delaware. In 1917, Henry was drafted to serve in the Army during World War I. On his enlistment papers, he claimed exemption from military service on the grounds of being a conscientious objector who was opposed to the war and conscription. This suggests his family may have been Quakers, as were many German families in Ohio. But nevertheless, even if they were Quakers, he did serve in France with the Allied Expeditionary Forces from 19, June 1917 until April 1918. After the war, he lived with his brother Daniel in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania for a while. They both lived as, quote, struggling artists, unquote. With a, with a prosperous father, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, someone paid the bills. Yeah. Uh, in 1922, Henry returned to Europe to visit Great Britain, France, Belgium, Holland, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, and Algiers. While in Paris, he took a class at the Académie Julian, a prop popular school because of its traditionally free-spirited environment. Additionally, in Paris, he met, fell in love with, and married Marquise Aline, uh, Marquise Aline Marie de Corisset. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a French lyric soprano who was born in Madagascar. Her parents were French colonials. Uh, Henry wasn't all that free-spirited. Yeah, wasn't that free-spirited, <laughs> folks, yeah. Now, they returned to the U.S. in 1925, first living with his brother Abraham and his family in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Henry and Aileen soon moved to a wooden-frame, three-story, single-family home in the Bronx. Uh, they lived there together for the rest of their lives and had no children. In 1928, Henry illustrated a repackaging of the 1870 novel The Story of a Bad Boy by Thomas Bailey. In 1933, he published a children's book written by his wife. This was called Friends in My Garden, published by Christopher Publishing House. During the 1930s, he worked as a staff artist in an advertising agency run by Adolphe Barreau, Barreau later a well-known illustrator of pulp magazines and comic strips himself. The studio also supplied art for many of the earliest comic books, such as New Fun Comics, New Adventure Comics, and New Comics. Oh, very new in those days, a lot of mm, things. Yes. Uh, Henry drew art for comics on a freelance basis for other comics packages and publishers, such as Chesler Studio, Funnies Incorporated, Fiction House, Fox Comics, 
Harvey Comics, Eisner and Iger Studio, National, and Sangor. In 1935, he contributed to issue number two of New Fun Comics using his wife's maiden name as a pseudonym, Henry Decoroset. And he ended up signing a lot of his work that way, even this story that we'll read in a minute. Uh, in 1947, Henry began working for Classics Illustrated Comics. He contributed to 34, contributed art to 34 different issues of this comic book for which he has become most renowned. His last published works were 1955 crime story comics that appeared in Trojan Comics that were edited by his old friend, Adolphe Barreau. Uh, Henry C. Kiefer died at his home in the Bronx on May 10th, 1957. Now, Wombie, Mystery Boy of the Jungle, has no origin because it's a mystery. Oh! (laughs) More of a mystery is why he wears an Indian-style turban and has tigers and small-eared elephants around, uh, also from India, when these stories purport to take place in Africa. Yeah. Uh, Now, Wombie can talk to animals, and he has an elephant friend named Torn. Clearly a ripoff of Rudyard Kipling's novel, The Jungle Book, that we mentioned at the top of the episode. And yes, of course, he is Caucasian. You can you can assume that for pretty much all the protagonists here. All of the protagonists, yeah. yes. Uh, now, deep in the jungle, the white renegade Rico and Wambi's stepfather, Wazi the Witch Doctor, are having a conversation. Rico suggests they send some slaves to North Africa for big money. Wambi overhears this and chastises Wazi. Wazi, however we're saying sure. that. Uh, so his stepfather tosses him in the village prison, intending to sell him into slavery. So from inside prison, Wambi calls in his jungle friends by crying, ah, ah, wah, ah. <laughs> And this brings on the monkey folk who set him free, and they call them monkey folk. Very weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, now homeless, Wambi hops on his pal Torn and makes for the nearest British army fort. On his way, he hears a bunch of natives conspiring to take down the fort. Seems they stop any slavers from proceeding further at the fort, and these uh, bad guys, they want to move slaves through Africa so they don't want to be stopped. So Wambi rushes to the fort to warn the soldiers, but he's too late. The natives begin attacking immediately. All too quickly, the British soldiers run out of munitions, so Wambi has Tawn lean against the fort's gates no one can break through, and he eases, escapes out the back to get help. Wambi uses his jungle cry to call Og, the great uh, 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 ape. <laughs> now, Og swings him through the dense jungle. Uh, then Wambi calls upon Baloo, the uh, leopard. Uh, 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 Baloo speeds Wambi the rest of the way to another fort. Wambi tells the general there of the first outpost predicament, and the general sends a detachment right away. Meanwhile, at the original fort, the natives have broken through the door. Torn is thrashing them as best he can, which is, you know, pretty good. It's pretty an elephant. Really messing them up pretty good, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, frightened, the natives turn and run away, right into the military detachment, currently marching to provide reinforcements. Rico is captured and taken away to prison. We do, we never do hear about what happened to the natives, so, uh, you know, all's well. Yeah, that's great. What a happy ending. <laughs> and weird. <laughs> uh, it looks like the, I mean, he didn't even need the backup. It looks like Torn had it all, all wrapped up as far as I could see. Sure. But, uh, now we go on to the next story. This is The Revolt of the Black Continent, featuring Roy Lance and his debut appearance. appearance. This is uh, Courtney Thompson, another pseudonym. So let's say, uh, born 1911 in a, a coffee can, uh, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, figured out uh, the uh, how to make vulcanized rubber tires and uh, like 
passed away last year of uh you know uh chronic sadness so there you go <laughs> i hate when stories sound like that yeah well you know they, they all they all have to go so uh True. this one it, this one's gonna be a little rough to get through you know <laughs> I, and then let me let me be clear none of this material we've read so far was what we would call racially sensitive stuff this is all Absolutely. pretty pretty much a product of his time but this one this one might be going uh a little far so Let's have the opening captions take some of the brunt of the story, shall we? <laughs> uh, the tribes of the African jungle, maddened by the blood cry of the fanatic Dawambo, lustful prince of the dark continent, rise up against the civilized world. News of the revolt reaches director John Abbott in Hollywood. His imagination fired by the idea of filming an actual African uprising, he demands to be sent to Africa to make a picture with the beautiful Joan Sarrett as his star. So that's the whole story in a nutshell. And accompanying these words are some pretty unflattering images of angry black men. Uh, We won't say these are the most racist images we've seen in a comic book, but it's pretty embarrassing for everyone, including us, right? I'd say everyone involved in this is feeling poorly right now. It's cringing, yes. (laughs) The producer of whatever studio John Abbott works for refuses to send its main actress, that's Joan Sarrett, into such danger. Then he remembers Roy, a big game hunter who can guide them through the interior of Africa. And I feel great about it right right away. Oh, wait, I know a guy. Oh, that's fine. (laughs) I got this fella. Uh, Roy spends about a page and a half putting together the expedition, even choosing the native attendants based on physicality. As the trip begins, Joan and John argue over who's in charge of things. John feels as the director, he should be in command. Joan feels like uh, she doesn't need to listen to him when the cameras ain't rolling. This is solved when John puts Joan over his knee and spanks her. Right, that's how a lot of things were solved back in the day. But uh, wouldn't Roy? Isn't he in charge? I mean, I thought that. Well, that's He's why he guy, was hired right? here, right? I thought. <laughs> listen to the listen to the uh, trained guide, folks. So the expert, yeah. <clears throat> so uh, eventually, they come across that enraged African horde. A bunch of guys literally shaking spears and yelling, "Kill, kill!" Mm-hmm. One of them even puts his quote rough black hands on Joan and takes her captive. Meanwhile, Roy pulls a sneak around and captures Dewambo, and John Abbott has a smart idea, aims a film projector at a large rock nearby. He plays footage of an advancing army, and the natives panic and flee. Yep. Uh, Uh Uh, So afterwards, John and Joan (laughs) try to convince Roy to return to Hollywood with them, but Roy says he prefers the simpler life of Africa, Plus, there's less awkward spanking of adult females, so that's nice. That's a good thing. Don't have to see that going on. So, yeah, we're past that. That was the roughest one. But now, (laughs) Chris, we uh, come to the eighth. We do. The eighth story features Simba, King of the Beasts. And we get no credit at all here, but uh, we figure it's probably drawn by William Allison. Uh, Bill Allison was educated at the Chicago Academy of Fine Arts. He did advertising art during the 20s. His work on comic books during the 30s and 40s was done through shops like the Harry H. Hesler Studio, Funny Zinc, and Eisner and Iger. Uh, Bill illustrated features for Centaur comics, such as Ace and Deuce, Blood and Iron, Jane and Johnny, and Rustler Hunt. On a freelance basis, Bill drew Chameleon, Daniel Flannel, and Target and the Targeteers for Novelty Comics. Wow. Texas, I love Daniel Flannel. I love it. Daniel Flannel. Uh, Texas Tyler for Harvey Comics. Captain Bill of the Rangers for National. And contributed to DS Publishing's title Outlaws, Parents Magazine's press title 
True Comics, and Rural Home title, Blue Circle. He was also the artist of the promotional comic, Tom Mix, for Ralston's Dog Food, which I don't know if you ever saw those old uh, comics that would run in the magazines. I think it, so. It, I, apparently, yeah, he did maybe, some or most yeah. of them. I don't know. How about that? Yeah. Uh, Under our character here, Simba, the King of the Beasts, is a 1928 American black and white silent documentary film directed by Martin and Osa Johnson, featuring the couple's four year expedition to track a lion named Simba across Kenya to its lair. Uh, footage for the film was shot from 1924 to 1927 during the couple's second and longest trip to Africa. Responsible for introducing a whole generation of American moviegoers to the wonders of the African environment, and doubtlessly a contributing factor to the jungle story craze that would create the comic book that we're reading today, Simba was a large-scale success, detailing wildlife and indigenous tribes people that had seldom appeared on screen before. We don't think there's a direct connection between the documentary and this comic strip, if, if there needs to be one at all. Right. Uh, but using the name Simba is almost definitely capitalizing on something. Yeah, but it, you know, it's like it's not just like copyright. You know, you just name a lion yeah. Simba, and there you go. But it's interesting that this is the only comic where the protagonist is a lot is not a human. You know. Yeah. Uh, so naturalist John Mason has taken his son Dick on an African expedition. At a certain location, the Masons' native porters warn John that there are deadly buffalo in the area. John, in turn, warns his son, Dick. The next day, Dick wanders from the expedition's single-file march, and I bet you can guess what happens next. He gets chased by a buffalo. John fires his rifle at the buffalo, succeeding only in getting its attention, and then John scales a tree while the buffalo snorts and paces below. The natives have long since split. Really, I mean... You got to pay these guys better. They're running from a buffalo. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. Now, hearing the gunshot, Simba, the lion, rouses in a nearby cave, and he goes to check out what's making all that noise. Simba happens upon Dick's form. He fell unconscious on the jungle floor for some reason. We don't know why, uh, really. <laughs> Simba, he's had the vapors. Yeah. Uh, Simba carefully picks Dick up in his mouth and uh, takes him back to the cave and the rest of his pride. Then Simba shows back up and kills the buffalo. John goes for his rifle and is about to kill Simba, but Simba just turns his nose up at John Mason and strolls away. Yeah, he gives him a look like, come on, buddy. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Later, John finds Simba's cave and his son, Dick, who is very much alive and, you know, just hanging just out hanging with hanging out with lions. It's awesome. <laughs> What's up, guys? Hey, Dad, I'm just hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> now, Dick wants to take Simba back with them to America. But John points out that he'd be happier in the jungle. And plus, you know, lions. Lions probably poop a lot. It's a lot. I'm telling you, this is not this is not a regular pooper scooper action. This is yeah, a shovel. That, that'll fill a backyard. Oh, quick. yeah. So yeah. Uh, that's it. And we got the last story. And this is the one we're going to concentrate on and expand on a little bit. Uh, we're calling it the ninth story featuring Fantoma in her first appearance. This one, just like Taboo, the Jungle Wizard, is written, drawn, and lettered by Fletcher Hanks, although he signed this one as Barclay Flag. He -hmm. was born on December 1st, 1889 in Patterson, New Jersey, grew up in Oxford, Maryland. His father, a Methodist minister, his mother, the daughter of English immigrants. In 1910, his mother paid for her son to take the W.L. Evans correspondence course in cartooning. And as early as 1911, he described himself as a cartoonist. His nickname was Christy, after the great baseball pitcher Christy Mathewson. Fletcher married a woman named Margaret around 1912, 
and uh, had four children, William, Fletcher Jr., also nicknamed Christy, Alma, and Douglas. Family members have described uh, Fletcher Sr. as an abusive father and spouse and an alcoholic, spoiled by an overindulgent mother. He made money painting murals for the wealthy and spent the money on alcohol for himself and his pals. Well, all right. Yeah, Fletcher Jr. worked odd jobs to support the family. In 1930, Fletcher Jr. found his earnings missing along with his father. Hey! Fletcher J- <laughs> I wonder if there's a correlation. Uh, Fletcher Jr. said that his mother responded, it's a small price to pay to be rid of the bum. In 1939, during the comic book boom, Hanks was producing comic book stories. Gradually, he abandoned the crosshatch heavy style he had learned in his evidence courses, which actually can be seen in the Taboo comic. Uh, in this issue, and sells on a cleaner, thick line style that reproduced better in comic books, which can be seen on the Fantoma comic. So it's like in the same issue, you get to see his progression. Sure. Uh, some of Hanks' work was for the Eisner and Iger comic book packaging company. And Will Eisner recalled Hanks as a punctual artist whose work was reminiscent of their early work of Basil Wolverton, which I can kind of see. Uh, sure. Fletcher Hanks did all the work on his comics, from the writing to the lettering, and was considerably older than a lot of the other artists who worked there. The primary publishers he produced work for were Fiction House and Fox Features Syndicate. His creations include Stardust the Super Wizard, Taboo the Wizard of the Jungle, Big Red McLean, a lumberjack, which was like a thing back in those days, lumberjack <laughs> stories, I don't know what the deal was, uh, sure. and Phantoma. This is one of the first female superheroes, the first one uh, to f- headline her own title or her own story, uh, predating Wonder Woman. Hmm. Uh, Fletcher work, uh, produced work for three publishers under a number of alias names, including Hank Christie, Charles Netcher, C.C. Starr, and Barclay Flagg. He used his real name on his Stardust the Super Wizard stories, though. Uh, in all, Fletcher Hanks created 51 stories and then vanished from comics for unknown reasons. No one knows really what happened to him for a lot of that time. Yeah. Uh, he continued to live in Oxford, Maryland, where he became the president of its town commission. This is 1958 through 1960. He would be found frozen to death on a park bench on January 22nd, 1976 in Manhattan. Yeah. Uh, the, and that thing Yikes. about him being the president of the town commission, that's like literally all that people could find about him. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's uh, who knows? Who knows what he did during that time? But he basically abandoned his family and... Uh, True comics, so pretty crazy guy. His comics are pretty crazy. So uh, mm-hmm. let's let's get right to it. Our half-page splash here is Fantoma, who is, you know, beautiful. I suppose with the constraints of the artwork, I think she's, she's meant to be beautiful, to be, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, blonde, blue-eyed. You know the deal. What these people look <laughs> like by now. Her face is flanked by skulls in profile, and an elephant uh, strolls along the right of the panel. The bottom left of the panel is full of elephants' tusks, looking like thorny brambles. Uh, caption reads, No white man knows where the elephant goes when he wanders off to die. That long-sought spot in the jungle, called the elephant's graveyard, has remained an unsolved mystery to the ivory hunters. Only the mysterious Fantoma knows where the great mountain of ivory is located. After thousands of years, the accumulated tusks in the secret graveyard amount to a fabulous fortune. Yeah, I never knew anything about the elephant's graveyard before we read this. And, oh, really? Uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty interesting thing, it's, isn't it? It's like an old legend, yeah. And it actually is yeah. true. The elephants do have like a place they to They wander die. off to die, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there's a procession of elephants. One of them wears a beaded blanket and headdress. 
caption says, In the royal procession marches Mala, the old and honored elephant bedecked with jewels. I don't see any humans around, so how exactly did the jewels get onto them? That's some pretty tricky trunk work, let me tell you. They Isn't get, it? <laughs> it yeah. must be. Uh, at the end of the day, his intelligence tells him he is soon to die. With the cunning of his kind, he sneaks away without being noticed. When I when I think of cunning and sneaky, oh, yeah. the first thing that comes to mind <laughs> is elephant. That's what your mom used to say. Oh, you're stomping around the house like a cunning and sneaky elephant, you know? <laughs> uh, Bala plunges through the jungle, his instinct guiding him toward the secret graveyard. Or, uh, or some fence along the Ivory Coast where he can trade those jewels for cash. That's what I would have done. Uh, meanwhile, at the palace, they're pretty ticked off about this. Yeah, guy goes, Bala and the jewels are gone! Two ivory hunters overhear the news, and one of them is kind of seems like the leader. There, he has a red band around his pith helmet. He says, "The old elephant has probably gone off to die. This will be our chance to find the elephant's graveyard and become the richest people in the world." And then the other ivory hunter, a blonde fellow, goes, "I'm on." It's good to have these clearly defined goals, yeah. right? <laughs> the ivory hunters get some bloodhounds to follow Mola's scent, which is something that the folks at the nearby palace hadn't considered, apparently. Caption reads, As Mala reaches a waterfall, a strange form greets him. It looks like a blonde lady in a see-through pink dress. Yeah, the ivory hunters gain on Mala just as his final death ritual begins, and the main pithoma guy says, Look, there he is. To which the blonde guy goes, a woman is leading them. <laughs> the blonde woman who, well, we'll just get it out of the way now. This blonde woman is Phantoma. Uh, she leads Mola to the mouth of the very large cave. Yeah, she says, steady, Mola. We are passing through the arch of death. That should calm his nerves. That sounds like a good thing to hear. The caption reads, All right. as the ivory hunters reach the waterfall, a peculiar perfume fills the air. And then the red band Pithelma guy says, I can hardly breathe. And the blonde guy goes, Notice how the dogs are acting. They're acting weirder, right? Uh, and they, they run off completely. That's as weird as it gets, I think. <laughs> Caption reads, The bloodhounds suddenly become so terrified, they break their leashes and dash into the brush. Yes, the ivory, the blonde fellow goes, What has happened? Their death cries soon echo across the canyon. I wonder what killed them. Well, he's taking it pretty well, I would think. Yeah, right he's, he's, not, he's pretty nonplussed here, right? Yeah. Uh, a huge grinning skull with long blonde hair appears before the two men, and the red-banded pithelmet man says, Oh, my soul! <laughs> but then the apparition disappears. Yes, the blonde fellow goes, Good Lord, let's get away from here. Yes, we must overtake Paula. Uh, the two run, and I mean run. You have to see this. Yeah. I mean, it looks like they're they're being blown by a huge fan or something. <laughs> Until they find Mala's tracks leading right into the Arch of Death. The ivory hunters suddenly enter a blind valley, and there is Mala, still festooned with jewels, sinking into some quicksand. The uh, Pithelma guy says, Look, there's Mala. She's sinking in quicksand. It must be the elephant's graveyard. Oh, and there's also like a zillion tusks just lying around everywhere. Yeah, that, that would definitely help things. Uh, but now the plot has changed from just robbing the ivory. The uh, red band guy says, We must get those jewels before he sinks. Never mind the jewels. Look at that pile of ivory. Millions of dollars worth. Thank goodness there's a two of them here, right? Yeah, they can at least they can split the difference here. 
Sure. Uh, now, Fantoma, all Skeletor face, looms behind the two greedy <laughs> men. And uh, the Red Man guy says, I wonder how I can get all of this ivory out of here. What do you mean, I? Aren't we partners? And, and weren't you just drooling over the elephant's jewelry? Yeah, right? like just a second ago. Like, wasn't that you? You didn't want the ivory. Happened? You wanted the festooned <laughs> jewels. Yeah. Uh, now we, we see Fantoma again, but she's got her lady face on. Yeah, she says, you are partners. Partners in death. Fantoma raises her hands to the sky and begins to glow. The blonde fellow goes, Good Lord, what do you mean? He who visits the elephant's graveyard shall never go out alive. They really probably should have posted a sign to that effect, right? I, I would think so. It sounds like a lawsuit waiting to happen. Right? Uh, the arch of death is now sealed with a white stone, and uh, Pith Helmet guy says, You mean we're trapped? Fantoma replies, Behold the arch. Your only way of escape is now closed to you, closed by Fantoma. The guy with the pith helmet gets angry. He says, Open up that arch, or we'll kill you. And the caption reads, As they leap for Fantoma's throat, she changes form. Now we see the blonde-haired skeleton emerge, and her dress changes into more of a nightgown. Yeah, that's kind of nice. She says, Sure. You have entered sacred ground. Be careful. But... The men aren't going to be careful. No. Uh, Red Band guy says, Who's afraid of skeletons? Come on, let's get those jewels. And I gotta say, I would be afraid, right? Of, is, oh, yeah. Of oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's the spirit. Don't forget what you came here for. Well, you know, <laughs> the second thing you came here for. Now yeah. the jewels suddenly became your big thing. Uh, the Ivory Hunters lay some elephant robes, large blankets on top of the quicksand so they can walk out to Mala, which is pretty smart of them, all told. Yeah. For sure. The uh, guy with the red band on his uh, helmet says, Walk on these old elephant robes. He's dead. Get every jewel before he sinks. And the two fellows are on Mala's back working furiously to get the jewels off. Somehow they get enough jewels that the two of them have to carry them in a large and a huge elephant blanket to get away. They find other jewels and bring them to the arch. Like misers, they begin estimating the value of the precious stones. These jewels are worth millions. Then the guy in the nice, nicer pith helmet has an evil thought. He thinks to himself, Why should I share this wealth with him? And stabs the other guy right in the back. Literally. Yeah, just bang. I mean, <laughs> I mean, literally from like conception to murder, it's about a split second. Uh, sure. The last man left kneels to the pile of jewels amassed in the ground and says, Now it's all mine. But the ground beneath, ground beneath this man swallows him up. Uh, he says, what happened? I'm sinking, quicksand, help! And Fantoma surveys the scene from a nearby bluff, overlooking the many tangled tusks that mark the location. She says, the elephant's graveyard is still a secret. Uh, in other words, she, she didn't help him from sinking. No, she did not help him out there. And uh, that was the first appearance of Fantoma, Chris, which was actually mm -hmm. kind of underwhelming, but, you know, if you read a little bit. If you read other stories, let me tell you, they get wackier and wackier <laughs> when she pulls all kinds of magic tricks and stuff. But, uh, you know, since I think we have now read a pretty long comic and uh, get a little mm -hmm. weary, we're going to take a little break here to uh, give a sneak peek of what we're going to be doing later on in May. And when we come back, mm -hmm. we're going to talk a little bit more about Fantoma and Fiction House. It's J.L. May. 
We're covering the Silver Age. This jailmate, a comic event from Mark Wade. We're crossovering a podcast. There's 12 of us involved. Get it? everybody and that uh song you heard indicates that we will we want be... to apologize for that before we... <laughs> <laughs> we will be we will be joining in on the jail may uh podcast uh, blog crossover crossover project. thing yeah. uh dealing with all the books in the event uh the silver age event from the i think the year 2000 actually now that i come to think of i it. think so uh but yeah we're very you know that long ago so that'll be coming for us at the end of may but to hand we're going to talk a little bit more about phantoma which is actually the reason that uh in case it wasn't obvious to people that i picked this comic <laughs> uh phantoma is one of my favorite characters and i just wanted to do an episode uh, highlighting uh some phantoma action unfortunately it didn't have as much action as i'd hoped but it was an important story. It wasn't was a... exactly the seminal beginning story, and we may yet do other Fletcher Hanks books in the future. You never know. But uh, so Fletcher Hanks would wrote wrote and drew fourteen appearances of Phantoma in every issue of Jungle Comics from number two to number fifteen, March nineteen forty one cover date. Over time, Phantoma became more supernaturally vindictive and cruel, like much of Fletcher Hanks' other work. Also. Hmm. Her skeletal form turned blue for some reason later in the comic. I don't know why. 
Uh, after Hank's departed comics, Fantoma continued to appear in Jungle Comics, issues 16 to 19. That was April through June 1941 cover dates. Writing was credited, credited to H.B. Hovius, art, times, art sometimes credited to Robert Pius. Uh, it's not known who these pseudonyms represented, or if they're pseudonyms at all. We're, we're pretty sure they are, though. H.B. Pretty Hovius. sure. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Fantoma would get another reboot, and this is in Jungle Comics, number 27, March 1942, cover date. Hovius and artist George Appel retconned her into an ancient Egyptian princess revived to protect the jungle. This strip ran in nearly every issue of Jungle Comics until number 44, August 1943, cover. Jungle Comics itself would run for 163 issues. The final run, the final one is cover dated January 1954, and it was canceled for reasons that will be explained. Being as though she's a character in the public domain, Fantoma has shown up in comics from time to time. She turned up uh, in Hack Slash, published through Image Comics not too long ago, and uh, recently had, or possibly even still has, a, a series written by Ray Fox and drawn by Sue Lee that comes out through uh, Chapter House Comics. Yeah, I, I did look at a couple of issues i really couldn't tell you where it's at right now mm. but uh if you want to out there and listener land make your own fantoma comics you can it's public domain anyone can make a fantoma comic and uh mm-hmm. even even statuettes and whatever you like uh and we want to talk a little bit about fiction house this is a, a subject that probably could be expanded into a full episode of weird comics history because oh, sure yeah. this is a seminal uh, golden age publisher but just to give you the nuts and bolts of it Fiction House began in 1921 as a pulp magazine publisher of primarily aviation, western, and sports pulps. According to co-founder John W. Glennister, in association with J.B. Kelly, I put out our first fiction magazine devoted to adventure stories. That was in 1921. Within four years, the magazine sold 150,000 copies in issue, and we began four other outdoor magazines and several others. During their first decade, the company produced pulp magazines, such as action stories, air stories, lariat stories, detective classics, the frontier, true adventures, wings, and fight stories. I like to think the lariat stories were only about lariat tricks. You know, everything was centered (laughs) around a lariat always saved the day. Uh, Fiction House uh, occasionally acquired other publishers' magazines, such as its 1929 acquisition of frontier stories from Doubleday, Duran, and Co., uh, by the 1930s, the company had expanded into detective mysteries. In late 1932, however, in the midst of the Great Depression, Fiction House canceled 12 of its pulp magazines, and those were Aces, Action Novels, Action Stories, Air Stories, Detective Book Magazine, Detective Classics, Fight Stories, Frontier Stories, Say it ain't so, Lariat, oh. Love Romance, <laughs> I know, I was really awkward, uh, Love Romances, Northwest Stories, and Wings, with the uh, stated goal of eventually reviving them. We've heard that in song and dance before. Mm-hmm. Uh, after a very short hiatus, though, Action Stories did resume publishing through this period, lasting until the fall of 1950. In addition, Fiction House relaunched its pulp magazines in 1934, finding success with a number of detective and romance pulp titles. The canceled pulps, fight stories, and detective book magazine were revived in spring 1936 and 1937, respectively, with both of those magazines publishing continuously into the 1950s. 
Fiction House's first title with science fiction interest was Jungle Stories, which was launched in early 1939. It wasn't a primarily a science fiction magazine, but would often feature storylines with marginally science fictional themes, such as Survivors from Atlantis. Or that one story the end of the, where it was all uh, with the robots. robots and uh, spaceships. Sure, why not? <laughs> At the end of uh, 1939, Fiction House decided to add a sci-fi magazine to its lineup, and they called that Planet Stories. It was published by it was published by Love Romances, a subsidiary company that Fiction House created in order to publish the company's romance titles. By the late 1930s, publisher Thurman T. Scott expanded Fiction House into comic books. Receptive to a sales call by Eisner and Iger, most likely Jerry Iger specifically, uh, Scott published Jumbo Comics Number no. One, September 1938, cover date under the company's Real Adventures Publishing Company imprint. Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, appeared in that initial issue, soon becoming the company's star character. Sheena appeared in every issue of Jumbo Comics from September 1938 to April 1953 cover dates, as well as in her groundbreaking 18-issue spin-off Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, that ran from spring 1942 to winter 1952 on the covers, the first comic book to be to star and be named after a female character. Now, other other features in Jumbo Comics number one included three by future industry legend Jack Kirby. The uh, science fiction feature The Diary of Dr. Hayward, he did under the pseudonym Kurt Davis. The modern West crime fighter strip called Wilton of the West, he did that as Fred Sandy. And part one of the swashbuckling serialization of Alexander Dumas, the Count of Monte Cristo, as Jack Curtis. Jumbo proved a hit, and uh, Fiction House would go on to publish Jungle Comics, the aviation-themed Wings Comics, the science fiction title Planet Comics, Rangers Comics, and Fight Comics during the early 1940s. Fight Comics. So good. Fight Comics. Isn't it great? Uh, I wonder what's in this, you know? <laughs> if, it, if it came out through Charlton, it would be Fightin. Fightin Comics. Comics is true. Yeah, the <laughs> Yeah. Now, most of these uh, sto- most of these series taking their titles and themes from the Fiction House pulps. Yeah. They basically just kind of, like, turned a switch and just went from pulp to comic. You know, they just comic. Like flipped yep. it over <laughs> one day. So, Fiction House referred to these titles in its house ads as the Big Six. But the company also published several other titles. Among them, the Western-themed Indians and Fire Hair. Those are two different titles. Jungle titles like Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, and Wambi had his own title at one time. Wow. And five issues of Will Eisner's The Spirit Collected, which is kind of cool. Quickly developing its own staff under Joe Cunningham and followed by Jack Burden, Fiction House employed either in-house or on a freelance basis such artists as Mort Meskin, Matt Baker, he's the first prominent black comic book creator, Nick Carty, George Evans, Bob Powell, and the British Lee Elias, as well as such rare female comics artists as Ruth Atkinson, Fran Hopper, Lily Renee, and Marcia Snyder. The popularity of Sheena led to numerous other Fiction House jungle girls, and Fiction House would become synonymous with, quote, good girl art. Yeah. Uh, this designation was tongue-in-cheek, since the girls were anything but good. Hubba, hubba. <laughs> Some of them are Anne Mason, who appeared in Jungle Comics. She's the maid of Kanga, Jungle King. <laughs> like she, it's like Sheena, she wears a leopard skin dress. 
We've also got Jessie from Jungle Comics. She eventually re- replaces Anne as the mate of Kanga, so hey, I guess not? it didn't work out. Nope. Uh, we also have Camilla, the wild girl of the Congo in Jungle Comics, and she wears a zebra skin dress. Yeah, we know her best as uh, Camilla of the Lost City in this one issue. Yes. She's, Camilla does a lot. She wears a lot of hats in these comics. Yes. I don't know why. She dies a lot. Uh, Phantoma. Mis- <laughs> Phantoma, mystery woman of the jungle, again, from Jungle Comics. Comics. This is comics' first superpowered heroine who we have met. Uh, Princess Taj, also in Jungle Comics, she rides an elephant. That's nice. <laughs> cool. Uh, t- tiger Girl <laughs> from Fight Comics. I don't know what the deal was. I guess she probably fought like a tiger. And Princess Vishnu from Fight Comics. Uh, despite these proto-feminist characters, Fiction House publications were specifically targeted by Dr. Frederick Wortham. In his 1954 expose, Seduction of the Innocent, which led to Senator Kefauver's hearings on juvenile delinquency. Look, we've talked about this before in our (laughs) five-part Weird Comics History series about the Comics Code, which can be found as a box set in our archives on our website, which we'll tell you later. Uh, This was the first series of Weird Comics Histories that we did, right? uh, Mm -hmm. After we split off from uh, being in part of the Weird Science Show. Yep. So, face-facing pressure from parents and rapidly waning industry, Fiction House became defunct in 1955. But believe me, folks, we could definitely spend a full episode, and we should, on the uh, Fiction House Absolutely. publishing. It's, uh, you know, we. I thought back, you know, we've only ever done Charlton. I think we, we need to check out another uh, publisher. And I think you're right, yeah. Bring them out to the people. That could be a good time. We did Piranha Press. Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> the, and, the storied history. Yeah, of and, Press. and I believe we are we are still the only resource for information about Piranha Press. I think we are uh, anywhere. <laughs> uh, so that's uh, that's also in our archives. But that wraps it up for this uh, episode. I know we we arranged it a little bit differently, but just trying some new things out. And really, I wanted everyone to get a taste of some of the, this crazy uh, jungle comics and Phantoma. Uh, what'd you think of it, Chris, when you, when you got through it? You know, I, I wasn't expecting to enjoy it. <laughs> I, I, I was a little gun shy. I finished up the, my action comics, 100, yeah, uh, you thing just read a golden on the age. Blog. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And I finished it up with action comics. Number one, uh, from 38 and that, that issue is pretty horrible. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very, very boring. And, uh, when, when I saw that we had nine stories in, like, <laughs> in another, uh... Yeah. Another Golden Age book. I'm like, oh, this is going to be awful. But these were wild. And yeah. um, just, I mean, it just so out there. And uh, it really, it doesn't mess around. It's like we had a, we opened up with a guy punching a lion down its throat yeah. to, <laughs> to choke it out. Just to choke it out and bring I mean, a zebra home. You know, it's like the action begins very quickly, you know. and uh, Yes. And uh, in action comics, it, I read like 800 pages of Zatara on top of a train. I mean, it was just so boring. Well, you know what's interesting this, is I'm sort of, I'm sort of postulating now as we record. So this uh, that could be totally off base, but you know a lot of the stuff that Action Comics, including the, the first appearance of Superman, was clearly meant to be as you read it, and factually meant was arranged to be comic strips. Uh, yeah, probably. that might explain why there's so much talking because you kind of get a longer tail on comic strips because you have to keep, you know, you, you got to keep the story progressing. You got to, well, you, and you got to, but you also got to keep the reader up on it, and you basically want all of your big cliffhangers mm-hmm. to happen on Friday. Or you know Saturday yeah. before the Sunday, so it has a different pacing. 
that's a whole postulation. But you know, the thing the thing with this jungle comics, it's heavy on a- action, but uh, you definitely have to enjoy it with a certain amount of you know tongue in cheek, you know, a little detached irony. But it's yeah, you have to take it for when it was done too. Yeah, absolutely, it, yeah. it is definitely a product of but its time where. Just definitely it's, a lot more I fun, think, you know. It's like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's sillier, but uh, much more enjoyable as a result. I think uh, for sure. So there are more things to be said about jungle comics and the jungle genre, as well as uh, Sheena, which was far and away the the biggest character in comics for that genre. Yeah. So I imagine we will come back around to it eventually, but not too soon. If you have any thoughts about jungle comics or have been to the jungle. Or want to talk yes. about fiction comics, or Phantoma, or public domain superheroes, or anything that's on your mind, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic history. Check us out on Tumblr, cosmic history.tumblr.com. We're on Twitter at cosmic and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. Find our writings every week uh, for more recent comic books on weirdsciencedccomics.com. And you can check out Chris's personal blog, Chris is on infiniteearth.com, where he reviews a different DC comic every day of the week, now going on 800 plus strong, right? And uh, mm-hmm. finally wrapped up your, like you talked about, your 100 down to action <laughs> comics with the. Uh, Yep. You counted down to n- numero uno, so you've done your duty. So you have, I have. We can now say definitely that you have read, well, really more than, but at least one-tenth. I've chronicled at least one-tenth, You've yes. chroni- <laughs> definitely chronicled one-tenth of Action Comics. And uh, mm-hmm. you probably won't be reading an issue of Action Comics for quite a while now, folks. So now yeah, is your time yeah, to I... go over there, chris.infiniteearth.com, <laughs> and check them out because uh, they'll be encapsulated for a little while indeed <laughs> you can check out our uh, show site weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com where you'll find our sh- weekly show notes on the cosmic treadmill uh any tuesday we can get a weird comics history out the mm-hmm. notes will be there as well and uh trying on every thursday at least for the next little while to uh compile some of our old archives into uh not not so much bite size, but easily easily found uh, thematically linked yeah. episodes or serial episodes, to where it's just a little bit easier to find than in the actual full blown archive. I, I I've seen I saw I can't remember the name now, but someone on Twitter pre I got a couple of people reach out to me uh, who appreciated that. So thank you very much. Oh, that's Chris. great. People really dig that or that format to really get you know that things things in a big chunk so i i tell you i I said this a couple times like really if you want to listen to back issues of our show you should go to weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com because the archive on podbean is (laughs) unbelievable it's it's nothing you can really do with it so uh that that would be my recommendation Absolutely. Um, we're also on YouTube. You can search Weird Comics History without the spaces. So That's Weird right. Comics History, all one word. Yep. And if you want to help us get our own YouTube uh, URL, you can subscribe as well. I think we have to get a yes. thousand or something like this. Something like that, yeah. Get our own URL. So uh, every little bit helps, folks. Uh, chip in on that. Uh, but anyway, uh, I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? No, it'll do it. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill jungleistically. Oh. In the jungle, the mighty jungle, the lion sleeps tonight. 
Oh, we're going to go. 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 Oh, we're going to go.